Hi, everyone. Welcome to the third season of the Bun Me Chronicles podcast. This is your host and producer, Randy Kim. For this season, I'm exploring the theme, Where Do We Stand? in response to the API issues concerning COVID-19, anti-Blackness, racism, and this year's upcoming presidential election. For this episode, I sat down with Anoop Prasad, who's an immigration attorney with Asian Law Caucus out in the Bay Area. Anoop has been working with those detained by ICE, with the majority of them being Southeast Asian. Anoop talks about the inhumane conditions that immigrants under ICE prison facilities are facing under the COVID-19 pandemic. He goes into the complex issues navigating the federal, state, and local issues that are tied to immigration and the struggles in advocating for the release of those arrested by ICE. Anoop shares about how the importance of the anti-ICE movement can also be connected to the current civil rights movement tied to police and prison abolition. With the upcoming election, he and many immigrant advocates are preparing what could happen under the continuing Trump administration or a Biden administration. And he shares his thoughts on how allies can aid in the support to abolish ICE and protect community members from deportation. I hope you enjoy this episode. Also, special thanks to my sponsor, Lawrence and Argyle, a Vietnamese-owned merchandise line representing immigrant empowerment. Get yourself a pin, hoodie, or t-shirt, and show off your immigrant pride. Visit them at www.lawrenceandargyle.com or on their Facebook page or on Instagram at Lawrence and Argyle. Hi, everyone. This is Randy from the Bunmy Chronicles podcast. So today I am here with Anoop Prasad. Uh, Anoop has been working as an immigration attorney through Asian Law Caucus and through Asian American Advancing Justice. Uh, actually, I've heard about his work through Twitter and also through uh, my Khmer and Vietnamese friends who have been involved in the anti-deportation work. And uh, given what has happened with the Trump administration and the attacks on both undocumented and legal immigrants, uh, hearing about the work that immigration attorneys are doing is very critical to understanding what is going on uh, and also what are the battles that uh, many attorneys and let alone families and those who are currently incarcerated are working through at this moment. So Anoop, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you today in dealing with the COVID pandemic? Hi, Randy. Uh, Thank you so much for having me on and thank you for everything you do for the community. Um, I'm hanging in there uh, day by day, just like uh, everyone else is, I think, during this trying time. Yeah, I I can only imagine that when you're dealing with the pandemic, it also uh, greatly affects your work. And I was wondering how has that affected your work as an attorney, especially with the pandemic, especially when you're dealing with uh, these cases um, for uh, for those who are currently incarcerated? Yeah, um, it's been an incredibly difficult, challenging time, I think, for everyone around the country um, who's incarcerated or close to someone who's incarcerated, either as an advocate or a family member or a loved one. Um, we've seen massive COVID outbreaks in immigration detention centers and also throughout uh, prison systems, particularly in the California prison system. Um, there's a lot of attention being paid to San Quentin State Prison, which is you know, a very iconic prison uh, where 
at this point, over a third, I think close to a half of people um, incarcerated at San Quentin, likely higher, have been infected with COVID. Uh, several people have died. Um, and so it's just been an extremely uh, challenging and difficult time. Um, at the same time, you know, there's been a lot of amazing organizing and legal work happening uh, to get people um, affected at COVID and at risk of COVID out of uh, prison, out of detention centers. Um, and so there have been some uh, bright spots in the middle of all of this. Mm. And I forgot to mention that you're also based in the, uh, the San Francisco area. And so can you tell us about what the, um, what the situation with ICE has been in terms of raids and also and in terms of where the legal system uh, is treating uh, those who have been detained in California or on a local level where you're at? Wow, uh, yeah, there's a lot to talk about there. Um, how far back should we go? Should we talk about the past few months of COVID or uh, do you want to go further back? Um, let's go through the uh, period of COVID-19. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think as soon as we heard about COVID and started to learn about it, um, how it was transmitted, how important, uh, you know, uh, sanitary practices were, how important social distancing was to controlling COVID, I think everyone who has been incarcerated or, you know, works with incarcerated people immediately knew this was going to be a total disaster in the American prison, jail, and detention systems. Uh, we knew right away that social distancing is not going to be uh, possible inside, that there's no space. Uh, we knew that things like you know, hand sanitizer and masks are just not gonna be available, and we just knew it was going to be bad, also because how many people are medically vulnerable um, who are incarcerated. Um, and unfortunately, that's proven to really be true. Um, so you know, in California, where I've been doing most of my work, uh, there have been massive outbreaks inside of prisons, massive outbreaks inside of immigration detention centers. Um, and one thing that's sort of shifted is ICE has stopped a lot of its raids uh, during the COVID pandemic uh, because it's you know, not safe to be carrying out raids. Also, um, they've been forced through litigation and advocacy to try and depopulate their detention centers a little bit. Uh, but in California, the single biggest source of uh, immigration arrests during the pandemic has been California's prison system. And uh, that comes as, as a surprise to a lot of folks because California, you know, models itself as a sanctuary state and also as, uh, you know, the antidote to Trump, uh, but they're actually driving what's filling up immigration detention centers during the pandemic. Um, and so California prisons really freely cooperate with ICE, um, ensure that uh, almost everyone who is uh, deportable uh, is turned over to ICE when they leave uh, state prison. Uh, there's been a lot of advocacy for many years trying to get California to change that. Uh, but this is also a policy that has really heavily impacted uh, Southeast Asian refugee communities uh, because of how heavily incarcerated they are in California across the country. Hmm. What can you share about the Southeast Asian communities right now um, in terms of the, uh, the deportation issues? Because um, I know in the last second season I have talked with uh, several uh, several Cambodian activists who have been leading the charge on doing the anti-deportation work, but uh, a place like California, one would think that, as you mentioned, is quite liberal in its politics, um, is certainly a state that Trump does not care for, but, you know, you're, you're also seeing this is where all the, the escalation of immigrants are the escalation of incarceration of immigrants are happening. But yeah, I think 
uh, going back to the Southeast Asian immigrants, I was wondering what uh, that has been looking like uh, as of late and what the future plans are for those who are potentially facing uh, arrest and eventual deportation. Uh, during the pandemic specifically? Yes. Yeah. Um, so a lot of the organizing and advocacy, uh, even before the pandemic, uh, as I mentioned before, had been on sort of breaking down this collaboration between California prisons and ICE. Uh, so California prisons are, uh, California has one of the biggest prison systems in the world, um, one of the biggest in the country. Uh, there's over 120,000 people incarcerated in California prisons. Um, and, you know, California does model itself as liberal, as you mentioned, um, but also is uh, very much addicted to incarceration. Uh, it has the highest percentage of people serving life. Um, and a lot of the folks uh, we work with in prison uh, are Southeast Asian refugees uh, who entered the prison system often when they were young, often when they were still children and have been locked up for decades. Um, and so uh, California has taken some steps over the last few years, in part because political landscape has shifted also because the Supreme Court uh, ordered them to reduce their population because um, they were so overcrowded uh, that uh, the Supreme Court decided it was cruel and unusual punishment to continue housing people like this. Um, and so they've taken some steps to release people, uh, but since the immigration piece wasn't really uh, worked into the advocacy, uh, people were getting out of prison only to get turned over to ICE and uh, get deported. Um, so um, a lot of advocates, including Asian Prisoner Support Committee, which is an organization that works with incarcerated API immigrants and refugees in California prisons uh, started doing advocacy a couple of years ago to try and address this because they kept seeing their members get out of prison after decades and uh, only just then to be turned over to ICE and deported. Um, and so we've been working to do this through a lot of different ways, through legislation, uh, through advocacy for individual people facing transfers, through uh, campaigns, rallies, actions, um, and it's been tough. Um, We've passed bills, uh, the governor of California has vetoed them. There's mm -hmm. not a lot of appetite for uh, protecting immigrants with you know, serious convictions. Um, we had one uh, recent victory though, which was really exciting for Chantan Bun, uh, a Cambodian refugee um, who grew up um, in California, was arrested at 18 for taking part in a robbery with some older men. Um, he uh, went through quite a bit. He was born during the genocide in Cambodia. Uh, has clear memories of seeing dead bodies and mass graves, uh, got resettled uh, in the U.S. as a small child. Um, as is really common, his family was struggling with PTSD and trauma from the genocide, uh, was not being offered any mental health care whatsoever, uh, growing up in a really impoverished neighborhood. Um, he started self-medicating at a young age uh, to try and deal with the trauma, um, ended up making some choices that weren't great, and so he took part in this robbery at the age of 18, got sentenced to 49 years in prison at the age of 18, um, grew up essentially inside a prison, uh, became an amazing um, leader, amazing artist, mentored other folks, a journalist. He spent two years producing a podcast called Uncuffed. Um, wow. And so uh, really became um, you know, a mentor and leader inside prison, like a lot of the folks who have been in there. So he, after 23 years, um, the governor finally granted him parole early, uh, finding that he didn't pose a danger, except then he was going to be turned over to ICE and deported to Cambodia. And so uh, Asian Prisoner Support Committee had been working with Bun for five or six years, uh, running an ethnic studies program inside San Quentin, saw him every week, built a deep relationship with him. Um, and we were especially worried when 
COVID hit San Quentin because Bun has a really rare blood disorder, uh, which is uh, prevalent among Southeast Asian communities. Um, and there was a good chance that he wouldn't survive if he got infected. And Bun was sending us letters saying that he was watching COVID basically spread around him and watching people just get sick and drop uh, all around him. And he was just basically waiting um, for, to get sick. Um, and he was only weeks away from being released over to ICE at this point. And so um, a lot of organizers and communities started uh, pressuring the governor to intervene and not transfer him over to ICE. Um, that's something the governor had never done before. We had tried many times before. The governor had refused each time. Um, but, you know, we um, tied it to COVID, spent a lot of time putting pressure on the governor through actions at San Quentin, uh, calling the governor, tweeting at him, um, getting elected officials to intervene. Um, and then to our surprise on his release date, um, ICE was not there. Um, he walked out the gates of San Quentin for the first time as um, an adult, uh, as a free person. Um, and we were able to take him uh, to get tested. He did test positive for COVID. Um, uh, able to get him medical care, uh, get him to a safe place. He called his mother uh, as a free person for the first time in you know, 23 years. Uh, so a really amazing victory. Uh, we're working on expanding that to make sure that no one is getting transferred from prison uh, to ICE on their release date. Yeah, Bob, thank you for sharing that story. And also thank you for also helping to be part of the work and convincing uh, uh, and pressuring Governor Newsom and also uh, working to uh, secure for his release and also get him the medical needs that he deserves. And, uh, and I'm thinking to myself, uh, and as I was uh, sharing in my last season, we think of, why are ICE targeting these immigrants? Like, what what is it about um, these raids that are very important to them uh, to go after these immigrants? Especially when we when we talk about undocumented immigrants, uh, but then we also are talking about legal immigrants. So, even with legalization, what grounds can a person be deported based off of based off of what? Yeah, um, I, I think a lot of folks, you know, they get a, a green card and it says, you know, legal permanent resident on it or lawful permanent resident. And, you know, they look at that word permanent and they're like, oh, it's permanent. But, you know, you pretty you learn pretty quickly that it's not actually permanent. And there's uh, a wide range of um, things for which the government can deport you and if you have a green card. Um, and, you know, I, I think there's, there, there, there's a lot of reasons why ICE is targeting these communities specifically. And I think, um, you know, I often say that the one thing that Democrats and Republicans agree on strongly is, uh, when it comes to immigration, is deporting people with criminal convictions. Um, you know, Democrats and um, uh, sort of across uh, state lines, across uh, country and Congress and the White House and Republicans have both uh, doubled down and escalated on um, aggressively targeting formerly incarcerated people for deportation, and that has you know, disproportionately impacted Southeast Asian refugee communities. Um, and if you look back at the history, a lot of this began in 1996 with some laws that uh, were uh, signed by Bill Clinton, um, IRA, IRA, and EDPA, that uh, created the modern immigration detention system that greatly expanded the grounds of deportation uh, for documented and undocumented immigrants. Uh, we saw then you know, escalation of this under the Obama administration uh, where, you know, there was this effort to prioritize uh, enforcement resources to target people with criminal convictions. 
Um, and, you know, Obama administration's uh, talking point was we deport felons, not families, um, as if you can't have a felony conviction and be a part of a family. Um, and so we saw, you know, drastically the raids on Cambodian communities specifically escalate under the Obama administration. Um, and the Trump administration has just sort of doubled down on that and even escalated it even more. Um, and then, you know, a lot of the advocacy from the immigrant rights world, um, you know, the tagline has been, we are not criminals. Uh, often DACA and DREAMers have been sort of the centerpiece of immigrant rights advocacy. Mm -hmm. uh, but that leaves out of the advocacy in the story, you know, people like Bun, uh, people like uh, community members who've done time in prison, uh, who've, you know, survived trauma, um, gender violence, domestic violence, uh, genocide, um, and really leaving out those uh, richer narratives and also critiques of the criminal system. And also, I think, um, and also to even add further, is that a lot of these uh, folks who have been incarcerated are also, and not only have done their time, but they've also had, they also raised families years later. They would also uh, go to college. They would be able to own their own businesses. I mean, they've already established a life. And then um, 20 years before that, they, um, they are being punished for a crime that they had done many years ago. So it's, it just, it feels very draconian, right? And I, I think that when, you know, you have already established a life and that you've already proven yourself as a person who's no longer a threat, uh, the idea of deportation never disappears. And we have seen time and time again that, uh, that it's an uphill fight for our own community to, uh, to help save them from being deported. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, there's um, 17,000 uh, Southeast Asian refugees who are in the community with deportation orders, like as you mentioned, mm. often for convictions from decades ago. Um, and, you know, uh, there's always the danger that one day there's a knock on your door, no warning, and ICE is there and they pick you up. And we've seen that with the Cambodian community where um, every few months there's a round of raids around the country and people are just, you know, um, plucked from their lives and taken to detention and put on a plane a few months later. Um, and so there has been a lot of exciting um, organizing and advocacy responding to these raids, um, especially in California. And, you know, what's interesting is a lot of the focus um, has been not on pushing ICE to not do this, because we know you know, that's basically, um, ICE is not really movable. It's impossible to find any compassion or humanity within that agency or the Trump administration. So instead, you know, a lot of our focus has been going back to where this all began, uh, which wasn't with Trump, right? This started decades ago, this crisis. Um, and it really started with the criminal system at the local level, at the state and county level in our local communities, um, with DAs, you know, choosing to prosecute teenagers um, often children as adults, choosing to send them to prison, um, with governors, you know, choosing to spend money in California on building prison after prison after prison. Um, and so we've um, instead focused our advocacy on um, the governor saying, look, you know, the state has made some terrible mistakes and you need to rectify these um, by granting clemency and pardons and to protect people from deportation. Um, and also looking back at DAs in local counties and saying, look, you know, 20 years ago, you prosecuted this 17-year-old kid and sent him to prison. Um, and, you know, that was, that was a mistake, and you need to support vacating this person's conviction in order to remedy the harm that you've caused. And so a lot, I, I, I appreciate that a lot of it is sort of expanding, you know, the idea of who's responsible for someone being deported uh, beyond from just saying Trump is the problem. 
and also uh, showing ways which other folks can intervene. Um, and it's been, it's been extremely successful. Uh, we've been able to keep most, unfortunately not all, uh, mm -hmm. folks off of deportation flights um, in Northern California in the last uh, several rounds. Uh, so it has been really inspiring watching this movement grow. The 2020 election is uh, coming up uh, very shortly here. And uh, I know that even if Trump does not get elected, say he doesn't get elected and it ends up being Joe Biden. And as you just mentioned, uh, unfortunately with Republicans and Democrats, they have worked hand in hand in accelerating deportations for the past 20 years. So with the election that's coming up, what do you foresee as possibilities that could happen on the local state federal level? I know that this could be very, this is a little too broad for you to expand on, but I was wondering what would you be prepared for should say Trump lose the election or should Trump be elected again? What would be the preparation that you and other immigration advocates have, especially in, in these uh, times? What would it look like for uh, the movement and the work that you're doing? Yeah, um, maybe I can start at the uh, sort of federal level and then work my way down to state and then uh, the local level. Um, at the federal level, you know, getting Trump out of office is absolutely critical as a form of harm reduction. Um, but I mean, for the Southeast Asian community, this nightmare doesn't end with Joe Biden in the White House. Um, Joe Biden was vice president under Obama, as I mentioned before, when uh, deportations escalated on the Cambodian community. Um, you know, um, Biden has endorsed similar sort of felons, not families uh, policies of um, taking ICE's resources and more heavily targeting uh, formerly incarcerated people, which is going to you know, impact Southeast Asian communities more. Um, so it's definitely not going uh, to be a cure-all just having Biden in the White House. We also know from Biden's own personal history um, that um, he, you know, opposed Southeast Asian refugees from coming into the U.S. Um, back in the 1970s. Um, so he has a track record of not being great on this. He's also been a lot of attention to his record on criminal justice uh, with the crime bill um, and also a lot of language he's used, um, really demonizing um, formerly incarcerated people and incarcerated people. Um, so it's, it's not uh, a cure-all, but it is important. Um, one, I think, key piece uh, has been uh, to stop the deportation is amending these agreements that the U.S. has bullied um, Cambodia and Vietnam into signing and is trying to bully Laos into signing to accept people for deportation. Um, there's been a lot of organizing in Cambodia, which I think we'll talk about later, by deportees to get the Cambodian government to renegotiate this agreement. Um, they wanted to, the Obama administration refused, the Trump administration responded and retaliated with sanctions on them. Uh, but I think pushing the, uh, the Biden administration to coming back and renegotiating these agreements is key. Uh, so that's sort of the federal system. Uh, regardless, I think the fight is going to go on. Um, it may be a little bit less intense uh, with Trump out of office, but it's still going to be a fight. Uh, but I think a lot of the fight will continue at the state and local level. Um, at the state level, you know, as I mentioned before, there's 17,000 um, Southeast Asian refugees with um, deportation orders. Um, there are a lot more who don't have deportation orders who are currently incarcerated. Um, so there needs to be organizing. And most people, you know, are in uh, prison and facing deportation not because of a federal conviction, because of a state conviction. Mm -hmm. um, and most people who are incarcerated across any community are incarcerated um, because of state convictions. Um, and so, you know, criminal justice reform issues at the federal level don't have nearly the impact that they do at the local and state level. And so there needs to be a push for governors in every state uh, to exercise clemency power, to stop deportations, to get people out of prison, 
um, that needs to be asked you know, that every state is pushing their governor to do more on this. Um, and then at the local level, finally, um, as I mentioned before, um, you know, there's been a, a trend with elections with electing progressive DAs in a lot of uh, counties. And I think there's a real need to make that sort of uh, identifier of being a progressive DA actually mean something um, and actually pushing DAs uh, to go back and resentence people, vacate convictions, expunge convictions, uh, you know, for everyone, but also for immigrants facing deportation um, is really a key thing that organizers and communities can do to hold their local DA accountable. I wanted to also ask you, like, aside from the Southeast Asian communities, but are other Asian communities affected by the raids that have been happening through ISA, whether it's Chinese, uh, Filipino, um, Indian, Pakistani, like, are there other uh are, are there other groups that are also endangered, just like the Southeast Asians, in terms of deportation? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the experience of the Southeast Asian community is not um, unique in a lot of ways. Um, you see, with Pacific Islander communities, uh, Samoans, Tongans, uh, Fijians, Indo-Fijians, uh, similarly, really high incarceration rates, really high poverty rates. Um, and also th those folks are facing deportation as well. Um, largely our communities are you know, first and second generation immigrant communities. Uh, you're seeing with, um, you know, with Pakistan and other uh, Muslim API uh, communities, um, they've been you know, targeted since 9-11 and has not let up. Uh, there's just constant surveillance that's impacting those communities. Um, you see really high rates of um, incarceration and deportation in Chinese communities as well. Um, so, you know, this is an issue which is impacting a lot of different API communities. I think often, you know, model minority myth tends to erase um, experiences around incarceration and deportation that are impacting uh, literally every API community in the U.S. Uh, recently, uh, the civil unrest has been happening and, you know, with the murder of George Floyd, the unsolved um, or the ongoing uh, investigation or the non-arrest, I should say, of Breonna Taylor and uh, and also uh, with the black communities being harmed. Uh, there's also been talk of, or a very strong push for defunding the police, police abolition. And, you know, during the immigration movement, we've been hearing the word abolish ICE as a very common hashtag, but we're also now seeing defund police. We're seeing police abolition. We're seeing, um, the the momentum for the abolishment of law enforcement uh, take place. But I was curious to know about the immigration movements working in solidarity with Black Lives Matter in, in terms of trying to uh, talk about the police brutality because uh, in all these deportations, police has openly cooperated with ICE and making the arrests and racially profiling uh, communities. But I was wondering about your own uh, experiences or, uh, or the community's experiences in working to, uh, work, working to be in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. Yeah, um, that's a great question and a really uh, rich and deep one. And you know, I think you know, the calls to abolish ICE, which sort of became popular a couple of years ago, um, we're really drawing from the work around prison abolition um, that's been you know, built up for decades by a lot of scholars like uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, Angela Davis, mm -hmm. uh, Marim Kaba. So many folks have sort of you know, uh, spent 
decades uh, sort of uh, explaining abolition and uh, building out um, not just a theory, but actually a practice for organizing and advocacy. Um, and the calls to abolish ICE in a lot of ways were sort of, um, you know, building off of that. Um, I think there's a lot of work that needs to happen in the immigrant rights world to do better, uh, both for black immigrant communities and also um, to actually address the connection between mass incarceration and mass deportation. Um, as I mentioned before, a lot of the messaging still today from the immigrant rights world um, is focused on immigrants without criminal convictions. Um, a lot of the you know, messaging is still, you know, we're good immigrants. Uh, one talking point used a lot is, you know, we um, immigrants are um, arrested for crime at a lower rate than um, citizens, right? And a lot of that's using skewed high arrest rates for black citizens to say, you know, we're the good people of color. And so there's a lot of like parallels to the model minority stuff that's uh, happening in the immigrant rights world where they're trying to distinguish them from uh, other people of color in the US. Uh, so there's a lot of work to be done. Um, I think the Southeast Asian community obviously has a difficult relationship and also there's some really, um, you know, needed internal conversations happening around anti-Black racism. Uh, but also I think there's a lot of openings for Southeast Asian communities and anti-deportation advocacy to sort of bridge these two um, movements, one against prisons and policing and then one against ICE. Uh, since the Southeast Asian communities experience has sat very much sort of in between experiences with police, with prisons and with ICE all at the same time. Um, and so often when we're able to do um, when we run anti-deportation campaigns for Southeast Asian refugee communities, uh, we're not just criticizing ICE, we're also calling the ways that police, DAs, prisons um, are all complicit in what's happening here. And so I think it's really important to um, make those bridges and I think um, Southeast Asian communities have um, a really critical role they can play in bridging these movements. Um, the other thing which I think is um, interesting is I think when you take a look at um, individual campaigns we've run, it's actually pretty easy to imagine what a different distribution of resources and priorities in our society might have looked like for an individual person. So, you know, before I was telling the story of Bun, right, um, who grew up, came to the U.S. as a small child, was growing up in an impoverished neighborhood, no mental health care, um, started self-medicating at a young age to cope with trauma, and then ended up getting arrested at the age of 18 and sentenced to prison uh, for almost 50 years. But it's really easy to imagine if we didn't fund incarcerating them for 50 years or you know, um, putting all of our money into police and instead have put, had put money into making sure that he was receiving mental health care, that he was going to um, a well-funded school, that he was living in you know, safe housing, um, that he had uh, food to eat, that his parents were getting mental health care, um, that they were getting you know, uh, job training and um, language support. All these other things which you know, would have costed way less money, would have made a safer society, um, Bun would not have been spending the last 23 years in prison. Um, it's actually very easy to sort of imagine what that would have looked like on an individual basis. Um, and I think if you take a lot of the stories in the Southeast Asian um, community and sort of break down like where the root causes that led to this person being incarcerated, you can easily imagine a different world. And one thing I forgot to ask you earlier was like, how did you decide to get into law school and, and work into immigration law. And, you know, doing this work is very thankless. I, you know, talk with Von Wynn, who is also an immigration attorney, um, talking with Sina Sam, who uh, now works for CRAC, and just thinking about the hours and hours of labor and knowing that a person's life is 
in jeopardy, but I was wondering how do you take care of yourself in this process? How do you stay optimistic when you're dealing with all these defeats? Uh, I know that this is something that you might not have envisioned when you first came into law school, but I was just curious about how that path to going into this work happened for you. Um, yeah, so um, I, you know, I'm originally from uh, New Orleans and grew up and went to law school in South Louisiana. Um, and for a long time, um, Louisiana was the incarceration capital in the world, had the highest incarceration rate of any in the world. I think it's uh, dropped down to number two, uh, which is nothing to exactly be proud of. Uh, but in addition to having a lot of prisons in um, Louisiana, uh, which really was a direct um, outgrowth of um, slavery in Louisiana, um, uh, Louisiana also has a lot of immigration detention centers, and that's partially because there's so much jail and prison space in uh, Louisiana um, that they started renting out extra space to ICE. And so um, I went to law school not being 100% sure what I wanted to do. Um, I've been doing some advocacy around prison issues at Angola State Prison, um, but wasn't really sure. Um, and then started volunteering at um, an immigration clinic at my law school and started going to immigration detention and talk to folks. And that's really what sort of inspired me to do this work. Um, but I think like um, really like what's taught me about lawyering and also taught me about maintaining hope is um, these conversations I've had with incarcerated people. Um, you know, um, I, I, I don't actually end up feeling hopeless or um, despair very often. It doesn't matter how much we lose and we lose a lot. Um, but you know, as long as folks inside who have been locked up for decades, um, you know, have gone through hell between a genocide and growing up in violent neighborhoods and surviving drive-by shootings and getting incarcerated at the age of 16 or 17 and told they would, you know, never leave prison alive. Um, when those folks still want to fight back against prison, want to fight for freedom, want to fight for ICE, um, it's very easy to hope. I mean, you don't get to uh, be filled with despair when someone who has way more cause for despair and hopelessness, you know, is ready to fight for freedom. So, you know, I, I very much just sort of um, latch onto or um, feed off of their hope and their enthusiasm. Um, and then I'm also grateful to have an amazing crew of organizers around me, um, many of whom are formerly incarcerated, um, who also just keep pushing us all to just dream bigger, um, demand freedom, even when it feels very much impossible. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. That is so impactful. And I think this is something we all need to hear because we demonize, you know, prisoners. Uh, we demonize, criminalize uh, people, especially immigrants, especially if it's like a drug charge or if it's a robbery. And I know that this could lead into a whole nother uh, debate with folks who want safer communities. But at the same time, how do we get safer communities when we keep building prisons, when we keep having heavy policing and losing funding on schools, losing uh, funding for mental health care, treating drug addiction as an addiction issue rather than a prison as a as a for, as being as a punishment instead so um i i wonder for everyone uh that wants to be an ally or be further involved in this work what advice would you give to someone who's interested in learning to mobilize learning to uh advocate for those who are 
uh, incarcerated, but also are being un under the threat of deportation. Uh, like what can we do as a community to uh, exert pressure on local officials? What would be the right strategy or what would be the ideal way to go about this? in a way that uh, pushes for these releases. Because as you've also demonstrated, as many defeats as you've gone through, there's been some wonderful victories where you've been able to stop a deportation from happening, or you've got the governor to uh, okay the release. And But yeah, I'm, I'm very curious as to what, uh, what advice would you give to someone interested in this work? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, First piece of advice, if someone wants to get involved in this work in the long term, um, would be to start um, talking to, writing, and building relationships with incarcerated people. Um, and I think that's a really key piece of the work. And you know, it's it's something which I think is just a really necessary that you have a personal commitment and relationship with someone who's incarcerated if you're going to start doing this work. Um, and there, you know, there are a lot of projects out there. There's Black and Pink, which has chapters all over the country. Um, which set people up with pen pals. Uh, there's also you know, a lot of programs inside of prison. As I mentioned before, Asian Prisoner Support Committee runs an ethnic studies program inside of Roots. Um, so you can uh, you know, figure out what those organizations are in your local area and start uh, joining them and volunteering with them. Um, as I mentioned before, like you know, Bun's campaign, uh, which you know, took place over about the course of a month, uh, but Asian Prisoner Support Committee had been um, building a relationship with Bun for five or six years uh, before that, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's like this deep level of trust um, between Bun and his organizing team, his legal team, um, and also like mutual love uh, for each other. Um, so it really changes the way that we fight. We're not fighting for you know someone we don't know or don't have a relationship with. Uh, we're fighting for someone who we deeply care about. And I think that really changes things. Uh, so I think doing that long-term uh, work is important. Um, I think getting educated on what's happening at your local and state level with incarceration. Um, is also really important. Um, taking a look, you know, is your governor uh, granting parole? Is your governor granting clemency? If not, why not? Um, figuring out, you know, who's in prison, how many people are there? Uh, what is your local DA doing about this? Um, if they're, you know, talking about uh, being um, in favor of ending mass incarceration, what are they actually doing? Um, and so I think just, you know, um, also getting familiar with what's happening at your local level is really important. Mm. And what also, are you currently working on at the moment? What, what other initiatives are, is Asian Law Caucus, Asian American Advancing Justice uh, looking to continue to do in terms of this work? Yeah, uh, so there, there are a few different pieces. Um, you know, I usually think about, um, there's this pipeline uh, for the Southeast Asian community um, running from sort of trauma of war and genocide, um, running, uh, which leads people directly into contact with police um, to prison and then to ICE and then deportation. Um, and it's a similar pipeline for a lot of communities that they're facing. Um, but I think what we're trying to do is intervene and disrupt this pipeline in as many places as we can. Um, you know, it's, it's, we can't roll back the harm that's been caused by US war in Southeast Asia. Um, but you know, we can uh, start to intervene in other ways. So you know, a lot of the work's been, um, as I mentioned before, stopping these uh, transfers to prison to ICE. Um, and then also for folks who are facing deportation, uh, whenever there's a raid round, we start organizing um, to stop deportations. Uh, we've been really successful in getting pardons and um, other ways getting DAs to vacate convictions um, in order to stop all these deportations. Um, and then the other piece uh, which we've started is um, what happens after someone's deported, right? Um, and you know, just because someone's been deported, their life doesn't stop. 
um, their family doesn't, you know, just move on and uh, stop grieving. Um, and so we've uh, been working on um, organizing in Cambodia, um, working with uh, folks there who are organizing deportees, um, and uh, to bring people back um, and eventually, hopefully, amend the um, deportation agreement to stop deportations and also allow people to reunite with their families. Mm. And also, I want to say, like, I'm talking to several Cambodian folks uh, who have been doing this work, um, you know, they've said a lot of wonderful things about you. I mean, you have become such an important uh, person in this fight. And I mean, from the bottom of my heart, I mean, I'm just very glad that you're doing this work to protect our communities. And, but also to really highlight the real story behind, uh, or the real narratives behind what is going on, because, um, because what we see in what the Trump community, uh, what the Trump administration and, uh, and past administrations have done is that they paint the good immigrant versus bad immigrant narrative. And it's so easy to do in the Asian communities where we get wedged into the model minority myths. We try to be the good immigrant, to, to be um, the model citizen, but uh, when it comes to people who have com caused harm, at least um, the narrative is that they're bad people, they don't deserve to be here, but there's so much missing from the narrative that we don't hear about. We don't think about the fact that these are folks that have done the time and have rebuilt their lives for years. And I think it's very important to really uh, highlight the fact that every story is so different and there's layers behind um, each person's narrative. Um, the Cambodian genocide left, even though it's been 45 years since the beginning of the Khmer Rouge, it still affects the adult survivors and the child survivors to this day, the Vietnam War, the Laos Civil War. I mean, these are traumas that never leave your body until you're dead. And so I, I just think about how important this work is right now. And then to deport them back to a place that they have, especially child survivors who were born in the camps of Thailand, Malaysia, Philippines, but they were forced to come back to a country that they have never been, um, been to or were born in. And also what makes it harder is for the parents and elder siblings, uncles, aunts that, you know, that have been so traumatized from Cambodia or Vietnam or Laos that the idea of coming back to that place of harm to see their child is is just it's horrifying I, I cannot imagine how hard that is to process as a parent to nearly lose your family and your life in in a place that you had to escape from only to see your loved one get separated and get put back to the place where they nearly died from so yeah it's it blows my mind about how the cycle of of trauma to the deportation comes back to the place uh, where it all began, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, what I've seen is often deportation is harder on the parents in some ways than it is on the person who's being deported. Um, and I mean, I remember there was one thing which uh, the mother of one of our organizing crew said um, when her son was uh, detained by ICE, um, was, which was, um, I think it was something along the lines of, you know, I lost two children in Cambodia during the genocide. I'm, I'm not about to lose another one to ICE. Um, 
And so I, I think, you know, there's so much pain among the parents and it's, you know, so triggering and they're reliving separation and experience of surviving the genocide. Uh, but I think also what's been really amazing for me to see is seeing this generation, right, the first generation who normally um, sort of doesn't get included in organizing or like political activism um, engaged. And so what we started, we started to partner with a um, nonprofit in Oakland, um, CIRI, Center for Empowering Refugees and Immigrants, that traditionally had been a mental health service provider for uh, Cambodian elders um, in, in Oakland and wasn't doing advocacy. Um, but then there was a round of raids uh, last year where several of their children got picked up by ICE. Um, and so, you know, Syria was providing um, support and mental health care for them as they navigated that, but also said, you know, we can't just be a service provider anymore. We're like, uh, you know, part of this community and we need to fight back too. Um, and so they started to do political education workshops for the parents in Khmer, um, explain to them sort of what was going on, you know, what the advocacy was. Um, and then we started to see uh, Cambodian elders turn out to actions and rallies and protests in large mm -hmm. numbers. They chartered an entire bus and would show up 60 or 70 deep. Um, wow. They started to show up to uh, lobby visits with elected officials in Sacramento and in Oakland, uh, sharing their stories um, for the first time with elected officials about how they had survived the genocide um, and what was happening to their community. Um, and they also you know, uh, celebrated when we won and had karaoke parties uh, <laughs> and uh, or really just became a core part of our organizing group. And that was really amazing to watch that there was so much trauma, but also um, so much resistance and love. Mm, thank you so much uh, for sharing uh, these beautiful stories here. And uh, also, where can people find you? Where people, where can people follow you and the work that you're doing? Um, yeah, so a, a lot of us are active on Twitter. Uh, we have a few different campaigns going on. There's a website for Right to Reunite. I think it's righttoreunite.org. Uh, right now, we're advocating for four uh, deportees in Cambodia to come back home. Uh, they're all from California. Um, they're all amazing leaders in Cambodia supporting other deportees. Um, and yeah, so uh, they're uh, China, uh, who's uh, been there for almost a decade. Uh, she also uh, developed arthritis uh, when she's there and she has really limited mobility. Uh, she was deported for a drug crime as a teenager. Um, and so we've been working to get her back home. Uh, there's KK, who a lot of folks know is from Long Beach. Uh, he was deported for a robbery conviction uh, also when he was a teenager. Uh, he started a nonprofit in Cambodia called Tiny Tunes, which educates uh, children and teaches them breakdancing and a number of other things. I've, really heard, amazing of, I've heard of that. Yes, I've heard of that group. I've heard yeah. wonderful things. Uh, I recommend checking out Tiny Tunes. They have a website. Uh, Chanta Kong, who's from Fresno, uh, got incarcerated as a teenager and also has been deported for over a decade now. Um, and then Chantan Mo, who was also arrested in Stockton as a teenager and then deported. Uh, so yeah, uh, th it's those four, but really it's a much bigger movement. Um, and we're fighting to get a lot of people back home from Cambodia. Um, that's been a really key part of our work. Uh, we're getting ready to launch some more campaigns around um, transfers from prison to ICE during COVID. Um, but you can follow me at Anoop underscore ALC. Um, Nate Tan, who uh, helps run Asian Prisoner Support Committees on Twitter at uh, I think it's Nathan V. Tan. Uh, but yeah, uh, we share a lot of uh, our campaign work on Twitter. Mm, wonderful. And last thing I want to ask is, uh, if you had to talk to a person who is facing deportation, what would you say to that person? Yeah, so I mean, I think 
I think a lot for a lot of times people would just be sort of resigned and say it's hopeless. I can't fight deportation. My charge is too serious. I'm not, you know, an exceptional person, um, or I haven't been out at all or that long. And I think you know the for us, I think a lot of our sort of symbol of freedom, our north star for anything is possible, has been a campaign that a lot of us ran for uh, Nia Norn, who's um, one of our organizers and movement leaders. And when we started running Nia's campaign, honestly things seemed really bleak. Uh, she was in prison. She had been sentenced at 18 to life without the possibility of parole, basically to never leave prison. Um, she had an ice hold on top of that um, for a murder conviction. Um, she's a domestic mm -hmm. violence survivor um, and had gone convicted for aiding and abetting a murder that her um, abusive boyfriend had committed uh, when she was, um, had just turned 18. Mm -hmm. um, and things looked really bleak. We hadn't be been deportation for anyone with a murder conviction. She was still in prison, hadn't been out for decades. It was a fight just to get out of prison. But Nia kept insisting, no, we we're going to fight. Um, and so Nia basically convinced all, of us, all the rest of us to fight. And so we got Nia out of um, prison and then for six months fought to get her out of ICE. Um, successfully won, got her out of ICE. She came out, uh, became a really amazing organizer and movement leader, and is always pushing us to sort of reimagine what is possible because freedom for her never seemed possible. Um, she just got pardoned a few weeks ago by the governor which is really exciting. So now she's safe from deportation and uh, eventually can become a citizen um, and stay wow. here. Uh, but yeah, I think Nia's story and also just Nia's ethos of always pushing us to reimagine, you know, what is and isn't possible um, is really key. Mm, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, talk with me, but also to share these important, beautiful stories um, that have happened as a result of this work that you're doing. And I, I really want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for doing this never-ending work that is always a constant barrier, especially with this Trump administration, especially when you're dealing with local and state officials who are not cooperating with activists or uh, not understanding what's at stake here. And But really, thank you so much. And also, I hope that everyone gets to follow Anoop's work and also take part in doing this liberation movement and to support Black Lives Matter, to support uh, work that uh, redistributes resources away from the police to uh, resources through education, through social work, through healthcare. And, um, but you know, it's, it's such an honor to have you talk about this work and, and thank you for really shedding light into what we can do to uh, put pressure on, on our elected officials, but also corporations and, and other institutions who are cooperating uh, with ICE to, to uh, do these deportations and to keep people in prison. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Well, that is all for today. Thank you for listening. And be on the lookout for future episodes. So follow me on The Bunby Chronicles on Facebook. Or you can follow me on Instagram at bunby underscore chronicles. Thank you again and looking forward to sharing more with you.